show. I did a weird thing, then you did a weird thing. Weird in a way that was not my weird. We're supposed to exercise and eat healthy food and drink water. Leave me alone. I'm not going to bed at the same time every night. Is this show killing people? Bad, 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 bad. Something good has to be coming. I'm so proud of us. Well, if you have enough peanuts, it should just bring harmony, right? I have so many questions right off the bat. For those of you who are like, my God, Michelle, you're too much. Chill out. It's McDonald's fault. When will my friend die? When will my friend die? Hmm, this one's a challenge. Both of my eyes are twitching. everyone hello welcome. welcome welcome to agreement we're doing a regular schmegular episode this time but it'll Just still be great straight run of the mill no grab bags unfortunately you slackers no drinks in hand except water yeah no bar I don't, I don't outside. Even an empty water glass it's not oh. that's probably so we're bad. dehydrated and we're not lubricated with alcohol i'm gonna cut that no um, anyway so this is agreement our podcast and we are me Catherine, and me michelle and every fortnight or so we bring you three things on this podcast which is a weird thing a pop culture thing and a research thing and then we try to make them mix them together stitch them together blend them together some various metaphors for cohesion yeah, whatever we're saying, this aphorism, fortune cookie, you know the drill. This is no one's first rodeo, I'm guessing. If it is, welcome. Interesting choice. Yeah. So <laughs> it's episode 43, because I'm counting the special episode as an unnumbered episode. Oh, it's like um when they do Full the like choice. comic books and they have the one that's like out of the series because it's, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it's episode 43 and I'm going to go first and I'm just going to get started. Michelle Let's and I are... Our lives are disrupting us enough. We're getting to business. It's time. Time. So my weird thing isn't so much. It is weird, but it is more of a delightful thing because that's the energy I wanted to bring this week was delight, which is that last week, my spouse and I went to a canine field day. What? Right? Which is excellent enough in and of itself. And that's not even my thing. Now, it might be weird that we don't own dogs. We just like to go to events where we can look at dogs because who does you I will just stop here and say that uh, Catherine and her spouse are the most adorable dog like lovers without owning dog like we'll just be walking and they'll both just stop and be like did you see that dog did you see that dog and i'm like it's a, they're dogs guys but the the joy is palpable and contagious and yet we're never gonna own a dog we are cat people i think we're gonna get a cat as soon as we get to australia Aww. but not dogs not not now so can i just pause to tell you really quick if you're going to get a cat 
I highly, highly recommend getting two kittens at the same time. It is a much better experience as someone who has had cats throughout my life. This is the first time I ever got two kittens together. And it has been, I read a bunch of research on it and they said, that's the way to go. And I am, I am sold. I'll never do it any other way again. My brother um, just got kittens and he got two kittens together because he did all the research too. And he really cares about being a good cat owner. Same thing. And he said, it's a great thing. He's had cats solo. Says this is a much better experience. It was canine field day and it was very fun. And I wasn't quite sure what canine field day was. I found out it was also very fun, but very serious because this was the hyper flight sky hounds classic qualifier competition. Oh, so, so this had... was not just like a random social event where people, had... this is like competitive. Yes. Well-trained. Was... Yeah. yeah. Like okay. it was half that. And so there were serious contenders because they needed to qualify for the next step. And then the other half was like fun field day type activities, but for dogs. And so they had um, an agility course. They had a 50 yard dash, which was very funny to watch like a teeny, teeny little French bulldog do the 50 yard dash. And then a greyhound do the 50 yard dash. And everyone was there just having fun. It wasn't competitive. It was great. Um, They had non-competitive frisbee, catch and ball, a fetch area, bobbing for treats for dogs, a treasure hunt, which we missed. I would have liked to have seen that. But the best thing was, and it helped us feel less uncomfortable, there was a lot of like dog adoption things. And so one of the dog adoption things, I think, is a way to draw attention to their booth, but also for everyone to have fun, had a dog musical chairs. what does that entail right right it was amazing and one of the fun things about it was we got some food there were food trucks and we were sitting there across from it watching it and it took us a good 15 minutes about like what are the dogs doing and then we realized it had dawned on us they're like they're playing musical chairs and it was amazing so what they did obviously they didn't have chairs but they just had little like milk crates and they put the milk crates out those were the chairs and when the music stopped um everyone held a dog on a leash and walked with the dog in a circle and they would give a sign to like get on the crate if they were a well-trained dog or if it was a cute little puppy they would just pick the puppy up and put it on the crate or they would just watch the dogs try to get under the crates and out of the sun it was chaotic and none of the dogs wanted to be on the milk crate so it was like, like a reverse this? musical chairs but there were some well-trained dogs that like clearly did show dog stuff where they did like a get up here and they got up there but that was it and they just the dogs walked around the boxes the music stopped not many i want to know whose idea that was i want to know what person was in the like adoption agency and they're like okay we need some kind of event to draw attention to our booth and they're like i got it i got it musical chairs and people are like what like no hear me out (laughs) (laughs) we can make this work and no it's it's that's very true because on the one hand it did not work at all and yet it was the best event at this field day and it was such a wonderful thing to behold that i brought it here for the podcast i don't have any follow-up i just want everyone to know that musical chairs for dogs exists and i got to see it at a canine field day why would that need follow-up that is no absolutely stand on its own kind of quality stand on its own on a milk crate so that's it that's my weird thing I love it love it I love it's um both simplicity and presentation but also just its uniqueness like that is not if you 
given me a thousand guesses as to what you were going to bring here today. Yeah. That wouldn't, what that wouldn't have been on the list. Yeah. <laughs> so um, my weird thing it happened in 2014 and I did not hear about it then. So I am giving you something old, but it was the first time I had heard about it. You may already know this story because it is within your- I didn't your... know about the tiger perfume. Yeah, so. but this is within your your professional field. So Ooh. you're not you're not within the professional field of- t- perfuming tigers so i I wouldn't expect that of you um do you know about the painting sleeping lady with black face yes so yeah so this is just absolutely wild and i saw it on like a facebook post and i was like what that doesn't it was just like in a list of weird things and i was like that doesn't make any sense and so then i looked it up and i'm like no it really is a thing so for those of you who are not in the know um which might be only me. I don't know. Maybe I'm the only person in the world who had not heard this story yet. I mean, since I'm an art historian, I feel like I did. Yeah, have a leg yeah, you up. had a little leg yeah. up, a little leg up. So, um, there, the 1999 movie Stuart Little. Someone was watching it in 2014, and that person, whose name is, let me make sure I get this right. Um, his name's Barky, Gurgly Barky who is a a researcher at the Hungarian National Gallery in Budapest. He was watching Stuart Little with his daughter over Christmas. Oh, this was actually, no, this happened in 2009. So they're watching a 1999 movie in 2009. Gurgly, which I'm probably mispronouncing, Barkley, Barky, who is Hungarian, works with Hungarian National Gallery in Budapest, was watching Stuart Little with his young daughter, Christmas 2009, and goes, huh, that painting hanging on the wall looks a whole lot like this missing painting that I've only ever seen in black and white photos. Um, And he was right. So he recognized the painting called Sleeping Lady with Black Face from a black and white photograph that he had seen that was from 1928. It had not been seen since the 1920s and everybody had just assumed that it was gone forever. Um, and so what is so interesting, what is what's so interesting about this weird thing to me is not even that this happened, that he saw this on the set of a of a movie, but that he then connected that dot and was like, okay, no, this looks like this thing that I had and had the confidence to not only because I would have absolutely convinced myself there's no way that is the yeah. painting, right? Like it has to be like absolutely. a replica or right. I'm misremembering. It was a grainy black and white photo that I haven't seen in a long time. Um, but no, he started writing everybody at Columbia, which the studio, I mean, this is a movie from 10 years ago. And he's like, I need to talk to you about this painting. Where? How did you get it? Why was it on the wall? And um, so eventually somebody wrote him back. It took a long time to get somebody to do I'm anything. I'm surprised somebody wrote him back. That's, yeah. <laughs> there's <laughs> a lot of like, you know, that part. There's so many parts that were this kind of just like you said oh never mind or someone just stopped and dropped the ball but yeah that he got responses and he got a response from an assistant set designer and remember this is 10 years after the movie so an assistant set designer is like oh hey yeah the painting is with me at my home um if you come to the u.s come check it out and so he they found out that this really was the painting they were able to verify it's uh, authenticity. Uh, it had it had been bought by the set designer uh, who wants to remain anonymous um, at, from an antique shop in California for five hundred dollars. And you know she was just trying to find 
stuff to put on the wall of the set. Like that, that's her job. And so she had it and she put it up. And um, so because he recognized it and it got authenticated in 2014, it went up for auction with a beginning uh. price of $110,000. So it sold for $285,700. Wow. Quite a, a lot, lot more than 500. I'm not a math scientist, so I don't know how much more, but quite a lot more. A I mean, percentage-wise, I can subtract 500 from that. But <laughs> yeah, so almost $286,000. And I don't know. I just think that's weird. And again, the thing that makes it so weird to me is like I would never have followed up like I know I would not have followed up like I would have been like huh isn't that funny that that painting looks like that missing painting and would have put no more like action into it I might have put more thought into it like it might have been a fun little thing to think about but to think like I need to start emailing people I need to see this painting and see for myself if it's real like I just know that I wouldn't have taken those steps and it makes me wonder like what am I missing in life Ooh, that's a that's a question that makes me uncomfortable. Yeah. Because, yeah, it's a good question. Because there's but... no way I would have done that. And then, like, yeah. so maybe we're not all supposed to do that. Like, maybe there's just some people who are, like, those people. Because if we all did that, it would be exhausting, right? Oh, yeah. If, and and no one would get the emails when it really counts. Yeah, because you're like, know. oh, here's somebody else sending me a wild email about nothing. Stuart Little is also just a very weird movie. I've only seen bits anyway. and pieces of it. I haven't it's from, watched it from, from beginning I to haven't end. seen the movie. It's by Evie White, know, right? Yeah, from what I know about the book and the movie, and I could be wrong. And if I am, I'll edit this. I'll fact check myself when I'm editing. Like, it's a, it's about a mouse named Stuart Little. But his mom and dad, like, straight up, his mom's pregnant a human woman, they go to the hospital. She gives birth to a mouse and everyone is chill. No one is too weirded out by that. Hello, Catherine here, fact-checking myself. So the book, Stuart Little by E.B. White is about a boy named Stuart who's born to an ordinary family in New York City. And he is normal in every way, except that he's just over two inches tall and looks exactly like a mouse. He is the biological son of Mr. and Mrs. Little. However, in the movie adaptation that Michelle and I are talking about, they instead chose to make Stuart Little an adopted mouse, not a biological son mouse. Which I feel like in a book by E.B. White can work, but to put it to film- like on film where you have to visually see that. Yeah. Yeah. As a little like- you know, like when you accept that Gregor Samsa just turns into a cockroach, like yeah, understand the absurdist territory that you're in. But when you're just going to watch like a kids', kids film movie. that's supposed to and be like happy and you're not ready for humans to give birth to mice. I think there are a lot of parents in the audience going, I thought this mouse was adopted. <laughs> <laughs> He's their biological mouse son. You know, genetics is weird. It is. It is. Maybe I don't know some... if it's that weird, but we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> so cool. Should we yeah. go to pop culture? Yeah, we should go to pop culture.
Okay. So just as happy as my weird thing made me, my pop culture thing makes me very angry. Oh, no. Um, So I watch, as everyone who knows me and listens to this knows, I watch basically any and all TV. I don't discriminate and I watch everything. Um, My spouse and I are currently blowing through Vanderpump Rules, which is, it's like confuse I'm sorry. a cat i'm trying i every every week or every fortnight i'm like i'm not gonna judge Catherine for whatever she says she's watching and i fail every I fail. time every time she gives me the look she leans back in her chair and goes uh <laughs> which i appreciate the day you stop doing is bad as the day i'm truly lost <laughs> so, like, what is my purpose in life and to be now? like i watched um you know, TLC, true life, I gave birth to a mouse baby. And I'm going to go, of course you did. Yeah. And, and then, 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 that, then the world ends. Boom. And I'll never watch TV again, which my world is over. Anyway, um, we're this is not about Vanderpump Rules. That's just an example of bad things I will watch. But I don't know how I heard about it. I don't remember. Somewhere in the ether it dropped into my life because it's quite old. Called Undercover billionaire have you heard of that show i think i have like in in the vaguest sense heard about it but i have not i have not seen it or seen like even like previews for it there's like we all know like undercover boss right or whatever that show is called where someone who owns a corporation is like i'm gonna see what it's like to work at this company and they go do work for a week and then they give everyone money at the end this is kind of like that Except they take a random billionaire, some billionaire that's worth, that's um, willing to be on television, which I'll get to in a second, because spoiler, there is no billionaire that's willing to be on a reality TV show. I was I was like, there's not that many billionaires. It's a no. small pool to be pulling from. So, okay. And I'll do a brief shout out to a podcast I love called Zero Sum Gain. Hey everyone, Catherine Fact Checking again. The wonderful podcast I mentioned here is not called Zero Sum Gain, as I say over and over and over. It is Zero Sum Empire, and I think you should all go check it out. Which is a podcast in which every week they bring each other a billionaire. And there's only so many billionaires in the world, so they are trying to work through every billionaire and they learn as much as they can about that billionaire. That's and the very, interesting. It's Zero so sum interesting. gain. Zero sum empire. And yeah, the most interesting thing about it is that you can't find much because billionaires don't want to be in the public eye for many reasons. I think the only billionaire that they could find a ton of stuff on was like Jay-Z. It's just a neoliberal nightmare hellhole. And the idea is they take this billionaire who's not a billionaire. They take this quite wealthy person and they drop them into a city it's it's undercover boss meets naked and afraid and so <laughs> the show you I, never I, wanted normally when you describe the uh i don't want to call it trash tv because that feels insulting but i can't think of a better description i call it that yeah okay. garbage yeah TV. yeah um i'm like i definitely have no interest in this but you're you're selling me on this right now i am i might i might hop it's, on this train it's it it's interesting but it's infuriating um so it's naked and afraid meets undercover boss and in that sense that they drop them in a location they do not tell them what it is until they're basically helicoptering them in the first season takes place in erie pennsylvania 
So they helicopter this millionaire who's supposed to be a billionaire into Erie, Pennsylvania with nothing but a hundred dollars and a tank of gas. Right there from the start. A tank of gas in a vehicle? Right, right. Exactly. They say nothing but a hundred dollars and a tank of gas. And that's what they keep saying. But that tank of gas is within a vehicle they also give them. Okay. And that that is a that is a big thing. It's like a thing. I want them in, with a hundred dollars and a one of those red gas cans you have to buy when you yes. run out of gas on the highway. That's what I want them. With. Yes, <laughs> and you whatever you want to do with it is up to you. It's are you going to threaten people? Or are you going to be like, I'll burn you up? <laughs> are you going to go around trying to sell it for a profit? Like, <laughs> right, right, just selling it back to people, or it's like I don't know. Yeah. So the idea is the reason that is infuriating is that. This show is very much based around we are going to prove that the American dream is alive and well, nepotism doesn't exist, um, privilege doesn't exist, and anyone, anyone, if they just work hard enough, can become a millionaire. And so the idea is they drop them in with nothing but a tank of gas and a hundred dollars and a whole fucking car. Yeah. Yeah. And um, they have to start a business. And by the end of a Here's another thing about this show, ever-changing amount of days. There's a lot this show hopes that it can slip by you. At first, it's 30 days, and I think it changes to 90 days. Because, because a lot of them were failing. Yep, they all were failing. Um, so a, within this is 30, short 649 days later. Right. <laughs> within 30 to 90 to 180 days or so, they need to make a business that's worth a million dollars. And once again, there's a cheat because they bring in a valuator and the business only has to be evaluated at a million dollars. It doesn't have to actually be a million dollars. And it just tells you so much about how everything they're saying is a lie but and everything's stacked in favor of this person. But so that's how it is in real life. So in utterly cheating their own set of rules, this reality show does become more real. Um, and so they drop them in. Here's your car. And one of the billionaires like sleeps in the car right for a long time so he doesn't have to pay rent and that's a huge up he can drive to jobs etc etc it is interesting to watch for a lot of reasons because it tells you a lot about how just fucked up capitalism is and who gets to be successful and how and so they immediately nobody right tries to go and get a job all these people right who are fighting the uh, minimum wage increase and just go work. None of them even think about doing like hourly labor or salaried labor. They don't do that. Um, one of the guys who almost dies of exposure for sleeping in his truck because he doesn't realize it's like cold and it's winter in Pennsylvania. There are so many points where they almost die of exposure. And that's the show I would like to see, which is like billionaire blood sport. And we all see how long until they die if they're truly left on their own. But um, because, yeah, then he runs the car all night. He gets like poison. He gets yeah, CO2 poisoning. Oh, can... He doesn't understand the world. And, so, and he also doesn't know how to park. Every time they show his truck parked, it's taking up like five spots and it's completely like not right there's a lot of funny things to notice so he spends about a week trying to find like going to junkyards and trying to find tires he can sell and that doesn't really work and what ultimately works is when they just go talk to people and what 
they are good at is being liars and salesmen. And they eventually, this guy gets a ton of people to let him borrow space, somehow one by one convinces all these hardworking people that they should work for him, but he can't pay them yet. He's not going to pay them yet. And it is all, it's utter cult speak, right? He talks about, we're in this together. You have to sacrifice. This is for a greater good. He does these tests, like these little, like, prove yourself tests that get more and more and more insane. And it's horrific to watch him one by one. You know that he's a millionaire and can pay these people eventually, but they genuinely don't know. And to watch them throw their lives away for him is, I can't, I'm not going to be able to explain it well, but it is really horrific how much of a grifter they can be. And um, yeah, so, and none of them succeed at the end, spoilers. So even with all that grifting, they don't ever... And with all the cheating and the grifting, they don't get there. They can't well, do and, it. So, like, even if, even, I don't know. Like, I think the premise of, like, this proves that anyone could succeed in the American dream. You didn't pick anyone. You picked from a pool of people who already had, like, if you believe that it's a meritocracy, which it isn't. But let's say you do believe that. You've picked people who have already proven they have those skills. So in no way are you right. Like even if you succeeded, you failed. But you also failed. So like, right. But you all failed. <laughs> um. Somebody. It just is embarrassing to watch the failure happen. But the first season, he ultimately ends up opening a restaurant and a brewery, and all he wants to do is sell merch and make it a national chain immediately because that's how you get the most money. And so he's working with like local brewers and he's like, well, you make a beer for me and we're going to brand it. And they're like, no, the brewer culture is about being small and local and we will not do this. We don't want to go national. Yeah. And yet he pushes it and pushes it, talks about the money. And so you can see how like this kind of business as cancer, as like cancer culture, not cancel culture, cancer culture, right? the idea that you just have to grow bigger and bigger and bigger. And that's all you have to do, which is what cancer does. And you can just see it in effect in this. And every time you go, why, why is this happening in the world? This is such a good microcosm of why. It's and so, they all fail. It's so wild to me. So I am a, a small business owner. I own my own um, educational, like I teach classes for homeschoolers and make materials. And so I have when I talk to people who are experts who are trying to help me, um, I, I went and took like some because I never intended to be a business owner. So I took like classes in business ownership and I listen to podcasts and I read books. And the mentality is like if you're not growing, you're failing. And I'm like, I don't want to become like a conglomerate. I don't want to be bought by somebody like I just want to live a I just want to work meaningfully at a job that I love and get paid enough money to function. And I like, I don't need quarter over quarter growth. I just need functionality. And I, it's just, it, the decisions that I would have to make if that was my goal would absolutely rip the heart out of my business. Right. And I feel really bad for people who, like, I, I mean, I, I listened to that How I Built This podcast um, on, it's an NPR podcast with Guy Raz. Yeah. 
And you can hear some real hurt in a lot of those people's voices when they talk about the moment, like there's a tipping point where it goes from being like something they owned and had control over to where it gets so successful that they're getting investors and they're getting um, people who are offering to buy it. And most of them, by the time they're on the show, by its time, by the time it's big enough for us to recognize the name, they've been bought out, right? Like they, right. they no longer have direct ownership of it. It's, it's always like, yeah, and now Johnson and Johnson owns it. And now Procter and Gamble owns it. And, you know, like, um, and you can hear like some real hurt when they go back and are remembering the story of how they got started. And, and why? uh, yeah. it's making me think of that white stripe song, the little room. Do you know the song? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> like I, and I just like, I want to run a successful teeny tiny thing. That's it. Like, I don't, I don't want to yeah. run. I don't want it to become giant. I don't want to teach. I don't want to have a, a whole set of pyramid like teachers teaching under me to manage. And like, I want to and just, just holding out until yeah. some big conglomerate buys you. Yeah. I like that's, I have no interest in that, which probably means that I'll never be successful by the definitions because that's yeah. just the only ones that are out there. And it is exhausting. It really is. At least in the U.S. currently, it really is. Yeah, I, I can think of so many of like the things that I started buying that I could only get directly from the website of that company and I loved it and, you know, maybe it was pricey and maybe, you know, I could only use it in small amounts because I had to, you know, plan for when I would be able to get it shipped again and plan for when I could afford it. But then once it gets on the shelves at Target and it's more affordable, I'm like, this is not the product anymore. Yeah. Like, like this is not, this isn't what I was buying before. Yep. Well, yep. If you want to watch that, if you want to see that unfold in real time, um, yeah, that's watch Undercover Billionaire or or help fund me to make my show Billionaire Bloodsport, where we watch <laughs> them all die of exposure. In the second season, the first season is only one billionaire, and in the second season they have three, but they drop them in different places. Now I think of the best because because these people especially to get started, just work by grifting people and convincing them to work for them for nothing. I think it would be hilarious to drop all three billionaires in the same small town, not tell them there are other billionaires and watch, watch them, them try to con each and, other, uh, con each other, right? <laughs> just like a, a um, reservoir dogs gun off of conning all, each other. You know, that's the final scene, it's right? Like... Work. Yeah, it's exactly what would happen. Um, so yeah, if anybody wants to uh, fund those shows, Billionaire Bloodsport or Secret Billionaires, uh, um, yeah. all in the same location. Give secret, gather secret, a call. secret billionaire. Yeah, taking taking funding now. Yep, that's it. So that's my pop culture. All right, so my pop culture is not well developed at all. I just wanted the opportunity to gush about these two shows that I'm watching and then I meant to look up more about one of the people and maybe I can do it on the fly and just like give we'll we'll see what comes up um so have you seen shrinking no but I've heard a lot of good things about it yeah so it is um the creator of shrinking one of the creators is Brett Goldstein who is also a writer and one of the main actors on Ted Lasso and um, I'm only like two episodes into shrinking so I don't know that much about it yet but I just love it so much and I've just been thinking about like wh what is so interesting about these shows what is so compelling about them 
And so I was reflecting on that a little bit today. And Ted Lasso and um, Shrinking, I think that what is so great about them is the way that they are tackling toxic masculinity and the yeah. way that they're doing it with out feeling like they're teaching you I mean it does feel like they're teaching you a lesson right like I like it's not like these are they almost feel like Aesop's fables sometimes right where it's like and the moral of the story is at the end which is really hard to pull off without feeling condescending so I think what I'm so interested in is how are they doing that and so um what what made me think about it in particular is the scene in shrinking that I just watched which I'm going to the spoilers for it but very mild spoilers because I don't know enough to spoil anything for you I've only (laughs) seen two episodes and I'm going to talk in generalities here so there are a set of people who are all enmeshed in in one another's lives because um Jason Siegel who is the main actor in it his character's wife died in a car accident and he has a teenage daughter and he has just handled that so poorly that he has completely stepped back from being a father and their relationship is really messed up but he is also a therapist and um so as he's trying to get his life back on track that's the opening for the show is him trying to get things back together he starts doing like some unethical therapy practices like telling uh this is in the trailer so i'm not spoiling anything here telling a um one of his patients that if she doesn't divorce her husband he's been listening to her complain about for years that he's not going to be her, see her anymore like things that definitely break the the thing and so um and then Harrison Ford is his boss who runs the practice he's like you can't do this right like you can't you can't this is my practice you can't do these unethical things all right so there's all of these people who are all enmeshed in one another's lives because he has a neighbor that's kind of been stepping in as a parent figure for his daughter while he's been having a complete breakdown and then um there's another therapist that works at the firm with them and so she comes and like tells the the neighbor like you need to back off of him because you need to back off because he needs more time with his daughter and she's like you weren't there I've been taking care of her and then at the same time that person's trying to get Harrison Ford to drink more water and like leaving water bottles on his on his desk and he's like always grumpy and throwing them off and like so there's all these like inner circling things of people trying to help one another but also people being annoyed at other people trying to help them and it's just it's very human right like it yeah. is obviously over the top and very like you know the way that art often is magnified in a way that it wouldn't be in real life um but the the metaphor as big as the metaphor is it it doesn't lose any of its realness right like just because it is you know like oh man that would not happen in that way in real life it is not realistic but it is true if that makes sense that's so hard to do but like if you're if in in any work of fiction no matter the media i don't see the point of not doing that i can narrate my own day thank you yeah yeah but so often i think when we are trying to like intentionally be um pedantic's not the right word because it has the negative connotation to it but just intentionally being like I guess sagacious right where we want to be Mm. the sage that teaches um it almost always falls flat because you are hitting those metaphors too hard and you have made it you've made it feel disconnected from reality and so what i think these two shows do so well and the last episode of ted lasso like it it 
I literally like it had me crying like three different times throughout it. It was just so beautiful. And it's such an absurd, silly show so much of the time. And then they just are able to like pull out these really heartfelt, really meaningful moments. And as I was watching Shrinking, there was all this absurd, silly, ridiculous, over the top stuff happening. But then there was this montage of all of the characters who had been mad at all the other characters for interfering and for being mean and like for making them feel bad all of them were doing something better for themselves because of the influence of the people and like it was just this like step by step like here's nice here's Harrison Ford drinking out of the water bottle here's you know like just I like nice things things that are nice I really appreciate them and they're harder to find but I think there's a resurgence I think Ted Lasso is is like making nice cool again yeah I and I just I don't, I don't know. Like, I just, I feel like the, my whole life, nice has never been cool. Like, I, I think that it has always been. Un- yeah. And I'm ready for this moment. I, I am happy that it's here. I think that's our overarching, like, philosophy on this podcast. At least we talk about it a lot. And I love it. That, like, niceness is hard and it makes you strong and yeah. powerful. Yeah. It's a force to be reckoned with and i refuse to be treated like i'm weak because i want to be nice right it's actually very very strong um can i throw in a quick wreck i'm gonna watch shrinking um for as much as i hate undercover billionaire um i just saw watched a show that was on peacock because for some reason i'm paying for peacock and i didn't realize it (laughs) that is the only streaming service i pay for is peacock I think it's because they have the Real Housewives. Anyway, you can lean back in your chair. But um, thank you. <laughs> um, but I hadn't heard about this show anywhere except then it was on Peacock, and it has. Did you watch Glow on Netflix? I I think I saw like the first episode or two. Um, and I don't know why I didn't get into it. it might I might have just literally been interrupted. There's I, so much television, yeah. <laughs> right? There's just too much TV these days um to catch up with but anyway i really really liked it and there's the actress um betty gilpin is in it and i loved her in it and she is also in this show and so i was just i saw her and i was so excited to see her in something else and it's a show called mrs davis oh yeah yeah i've heard really good things about mrs davis but then i keep seeing ads for it and it's on peacock and i refuse to acknowledge the existence of more streaming services than the ones i already have so i've had to ignore its existence but now maybe when we get together we can have a like fast (laughs) i would watch the show all over again i really would um it's being released week by week which is driving me crazy it's i realize how spoiled and how my attention span has differed now that you can watch everything at once but it is so good. And it's nothing like what the trailer really makes it look like. And it is so absurdist. It is high absurdity in, in a way that I don't see enough and I love. It's like my favorite kind of absurdity. This show is scratching all kinds of itches I didn't even know I had. Whoever is, I keep screaming and my husband too, going, who is behind this? Because they're in my head and they're living in my head. They are very into Catholicism, like the theology of it, not not in a religious way but, but the, in the structure like, yeah, of catholicism which you have always been interested in yes. like you remember but when also, you were like like 13 and you're like we have to go buy all the saint candles i'm like we do 
Yep, we're at the auction. I was yes. buying like saint paddles. Yeah, I still have them. I don't regret it. I was trying to sneak into Catholic supply shops and get them to sell me hosts yes. and they wouldn't. So yeah. Um, one of the funniest jokes in it, I don't think this is a spoiler, but um the main character is a nun. And for various reasons, the nunnery she's at runs out of money and they're disbanded and the nuns go other places and they're all kind of retired. And it's probably not funny out of context, but one of the nuns just goes, are we still nuns? And it just made me laugh so hard. Are you still because, nuns? If the right? nunnery, Because yeah. it's an interesting question. Structurally, yeah. if your nunnery is gone and they all ship you out to different places to retire, are you still a nun? They take the whole... Um, bride of christ as a nun thing so literally which is like if you don't know that you do marry jesus yeah like, they have a like, ceremony. like a yeah they have a wedding you wear a ring because you're jesus's wife but the other thing that really got in my head was um that it's very much about magic and in a way where they're appreciating magicians and what magicians do and I think a few episodes ago, I was talking about how I just like magic and magic yeah. is so interesting. And that you are and a magician now. I'm a magician now. So whoever is into this is into Catholicism and magic in the same way why they interest me. And it's very absurd. And I love it. So I'm going to watch Shrinking. So those are the wrecks. Watch Shrinking and watch Mrs. Davis. We are ready to move on to research thing. Yeah. Already. This is. I know. This is. This is quick. I don't know. It feels quick. I'm a little. I always joke that no matter what I do, the episodes are an hour and 47 minutes. And go look at the times, people, except for the special episode. That's pretty much where they land. I was not high when I thought this would be an interesting thing to talk about. I promise. So I subscribe to a listserv called Eflux, which is just E-F-L-U-X. And it's an art and theory um, website and listserv thing. It has one foot in academia, one foot in the art world. I like learning new things on it. And this week, the theme of what they were telling us was kind of about interviews. And I had never really thought about interviews as like a genre or something special. And they had, which really delighted me and got this wheel spinning, this ball rolling, was um, an artist named Marcel Rudders, who was a, did most of his work in the mid-1900s. And what they shared was a recording and a translation of it, he's French, um, of an interview about painting he did with a cat. And it just delighted wait, me. Wait, what do you mean by with a cat? With a cat. He interviewed a cat about art. Okay. And so a cat, well, like animal. Cat. I couldn't tell if you meant that he like painted with the cat. Oh, yes. No, it was more of a um, art appreciation. Okay. Talking about okay. a painting theoretically. Okay. And I am going I see how to. see a cat could have things to say about that. Exactly. Cats have things to say. So I'm going to put in an excerpt of some of that here, but it is in French. But it just sounds delightful. The pace and the rhythm of it and the cat meowing. But I'll give you an example translated right now that he says, is that one a good painting? Does it correspond to what you expect from that very recent transformation, which goes from conceptual art to this new version of a kind of figuration, as one might say? Cat. Meow. Marcel. Do you think so? Cat. 
meow, 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 Marcel. And yet this color is very clearly redolent of the painting that was being done in the period of abstract art, isn't it? Pendant cette couleur rappelle quand même nettement la, la peinture qu'on faisait au, au moment de l'art abstrait, n'est-ce pas? Êtes-vous certain que ce n'est pas un nouvel académisme? Et mais s'il s'agit d'audace, c'est tout de même une audace. Yeah, and just goes on like that. And it's just silly. It's delightful. Um, But it did get me wondering, and again, I promise I was not in an altered state of mind, just my own consciousness. Like, what are interviews as a construct? Okay. I know what an interview is, everyone. No, I'm, I'm I with understand you. I'm... it. But basically, part of this is the cat interview. Part of it is I've been working on a really long form archival interview project for a while called the Feminist Interview Project. And I'm doing it with the College Art Association and Art Journal. And it's been a big project. I've talked to you about it forever, Michelle, and I'm really proud of it. And it's finally up and running. And it just consists of doing interviews with feminist scholars and theorists and artists. And I had to go through and write like, here are the rules of how you do the interview. Here are the questions we need you to ask, but here's what you can do on your own and freestyle. And it was really interesting to actually like engineer an interview project and learn where it failed, learn where it worked and work through that for several years. Um, so I guess that's why my brain was like, what, you, what even is an interview? So I tried to find for my research how interviews began. Like, what is the origin of the concept of an interview for mankind? And unfortunately, my main research form these days is the internet. I'm not currently at a university. And so the internet just really wanted to tell me about job interviews. That's all oh. it wanted. It took a lot. I finally oh, had to give in. Capitalism. Just, right? Um, I learned some interesting things about job interviews that I'll share with you. But basically... The only place I could find much of anything to start with was Quora. So Quora, you told, Quora told me that probably the oldest um, interview was Plato's Socratic Dialogue. Might be one of the earliest. If we consider that an interview, I have questions about like, what's an interview? What's a dialogue? Right. What's a conversation? Because I don't think that's an interview. Because Plato probably wrote all of the sides of his right <laughs> dialogues right. himself it's so not even if we take what he's doing and say yeah. okay here's more people it's not an interview and then it's definitely not because he's writing alone yeah so that's not an interview but it did make me wonder what how do we differentiate somebody having a conversation when does a conversation become interview you know and of course i think there's someone that is notable in some way who's 
being asked questions and that's well, how it's different and if but... you think about like interviews from different because i've read interviews from different magazines and like they have extremely different journalistic styles like some of them are just some of them literally don't even include like the interviewers words it's just the responses yeah. put into like an editorialized way but then other ones i think i've seen some in rolling stone where like the interviewer is giving as much information about their experiences and their what their perspective is, is as much of the story as the person they are interviewing. And so I was going to say, well, is the definition then the, like the balance of power? Like, but I, but now I'm thinking about it and I'm like, I don't know if that's even true. I don't know if I can. No, yeah. there are a lot of interviews where people are equally famous and I like those. Like interview magazine does that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Where it's somebody famous interviewing somebody in a different. And it, circle, and it ends up in but... like a back and forth where you yeah. really get the intimacy from both of them. Yeah. And why is that not a dialogue? Anyway, we'll get we'll get to some of this. So maybe, but that idea of a conversation that you write down, I, I don't agree. And that was 400 BC about, we'll say. So then I found, and this is what really interested me. I found um, on Quora again, that there is a very old, maybe one of the first recorded examples of an interview, which is um, from... The, I'm I am going to say all these Egyptians name wrong, and I pro I apologize in advance. I do know how to say Ramses. So Ramses the ninth during his reign of Egypt, there is a papyrus that was found called the Amherst papyrus, and then I'm going to tell you first what Cora told me, and then I'll tell you what my research unfolded because they're different. Surprise, surprise, surprise. So the Amherst papyrus is from. 1113 bc is that how we say that i guess um 2008 yeah yeah or 1120 1113 thank you why i should not have struggled with that um 1113 bc which is of course much much older than 400 bc anyway during the reign of ramses the ninth and that papyrus is said to record an interview with a tomb robber detailing their recollection of the robbery of the tombs of Sebekemps and his queen, Nubkus. Hmm. Um, which is fascinating. I was like, yeah. what? And this like, is was he like... in prison at the time? Or was it like a, yeah. you know, like it's making me think of the, uh, the catch me if you can, with it, like right. Leonardo DiCaprio's in at the end. Like, All right, tell us how you did this. Cause we, we really need some help. Like, <laughs> Yes. Yeah. And this was such a great tomb robbery. I was first off interested to learn that tomb robberies, I think of that as such like a Europeans going in and stealing everything, that they were happening in real time, right? That this was recorded on an ancient Egyptian papyrus and they were tomb robbing an ancient, an ancienter Egyptian grave. When you put all your wealth inside giant yeah. pyramids that are like hey here's all my wealth this is the spot i feel like i don't and want not, a victim blame. blame the victim i'm just are you saying that yeah yeah that you might need some extra curses if that's yes. how you're gonna structure your society yeah yeah it's it's asking for trouble so so i learned that that yes um i think it said they stole 35 pounds of gold including other things which is a lot of gold yeah. and um so that's what Cora told me, that this was an interview with a tomb robber from the Amherst Papyrus, is that the Amherst Papyrus is not one papyrus. It's a collection of papyruses that are some of the best preserved ancient Egyptian papyruses we have. 
and they were looted and stolen by Lord Amherst. So that is the very British European colonialization will come get it. And then I always hate when this happens. He gets his name on it. Like, right? (laughs) Oh, it's like Amherst doesn't sound very Egyptian. Right. I was going to ask that. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Um, it's like colonialism. The Venus of Villendorf, right? All of these things, especially like ancient Greek and Roman art, Egyptian art, are named after European men who went and found them, not the people who made them, not the people that they're about. Anyway, and so there's a couple of these papyruses, and this is the papyrus of Leopold II. Again, that's not an Egyptian name, that's somebody else who found it and then sold it to Amherst. So It's the Amherst Papyrus 6 and the Papyrus Leopold II. That's how they're ordered if you want to look them up. And it's not an interview with a Tomb Raider as such. But then a lot of people on Quora were saying you should count these as interviews. It was court records. Oh. Which if you think about it, kind of is a form of Yeah, I mean, it definitely has that like question of a particular person with their experiences or um perceptions in as the goal for what you're trying to get out of it yeah and i was pretty satisfied with that that if we're going to say what's what is the origin of an interview and the first recorded forms of interviews it probably would be from court records i would think that makes sense if if having to have it written down is a component of it being an interview or maybe not literally written down since now we record them you know digitally but being like audio recordings but being recorded in some way for posterity that i mean that seems logical to me that like yeah a court situation would be the first time that you would think of oh let's get this let's get this in in the records so we could refer to it again later yeah so I was satisfied with that as a perhaps first one, at least that we can know because of recorded history. Yeah. And um, yeah, so it isn't just someone sitting down. And I love that image of someone just interviewing them in prison. Like, so why'd you do it? Yeah. How'd you do it? Like you said, the theatrical thing. So it's court records dealing with the tomb robberies under, again, Ramses the Ninth in the tomb of Sabakem Seth II and a description of the reconstruction of the crime. They did say, so how'd you do it? Tell us. But it was and for a court was, proceeding, not yeah. just for like, out of curiosity's sake. <laughs> and not only is it a court recording, it throws very, it tells us a lot about the um, legal system and how that worked in ancient Egypt, which is fascinating. And they elicited confessions by beating, here's, this is kind of verbatim, by beating with a double rod, smiting their feet and hands. So it's a record of torture as well, which also for the human race seems to track where I'm sitting with us. Um, so yeah, they would beat they would beat this person with a double rod. I don't know what that is, but it doesn't sound like something you want to be beaten with. And until they confessed and told them how they did it. So people are like this, you know, this is under duress. This we can't take any of this at face value. But that's what happened. That they they put on the record. We start the procedure. We beat you up, and then you tell us what you did. You re- he reconstructed the crime on the site, and um, it also tells us the details of the imprisonment and the punishment. And it just is a fascinating document that is amazing that it exists to this day. It's very cool. And so I think that is where interviews 
on the record maybe originated. If nothing else, I learned about that cool thing. I did then look into interviews writ large, and I found a list of the most watched television interviews ever, because that's easy to find the numbers on. And do you have any idea who maybe what the most watched television interview and recorded television history? No. A lot of people were guessing Frost Nixon, right? That's like very notable. But that was number four. Frost Nixon's number four. At number one, we have Oprah. I was going to say, is Oprah, is, did Oprah do it? But I couldn't think of oh, who would guess. Oprah, right? Right. Oprah did it. Doing Michael Jackson in 1993. Oh. So it's Michael Jackson. The second most popular is Oprah. Again, not a surprise. Interviewing Harry and Meghan. Um, and then oh, Like Walters. the one that just, like the one yeah. that just yeah. happened. Yeah. I that mean, one. not just because time's crazy, but relatively just yeah it's more recent than 1993 we can say that even though time is weird and then um barbara walters interviewing monica monica lewinsky's number four frost nixon no that's number three frost nixon's number four and number five is once again michael jackson being interviewed by diane sawyer so michael jackson people like to watch him answer questions a lot this is making me think about um, how much we've been looking back at old interviews because there's been a real push toward um, the way that the media has treated pop stars and the way that the media has treated um, victims, like especially female victims of of sexual misconduct. And those interviewers have become like a real lightning rod for like, why, why was this behavior acceptable? Why was it okay to ask these questions? And, um, you know, like, now I'm thinking, I had not thought of like uh, the late night talk shows, but those are all interview format. Yeah. And like some of the stuff that like, is it, uh, is it Jay Leno? Like some of the stuff that he all got away them. with. I'm like, all of what them. is David Letterman was really bad too. Yeah. Oh yeah. I think David Letterman is probably the one that I'm, I'm thinking of. Like, and it was just supposed to be like this kind of not quite family friendly because it was late night or whatever, but certainly like mainstream. haha, We all are enjoying this. Yeah. And I'm like, we're just watching somebody bully someone on stage. Like this is not, I don't know. I, I feel yeah. like it's really uncomfortable to watch and that those standards so uncomfortable have shifted so fast, so much. I have an immediate knowledge of this because I also found on the internet when I was searching um, on insider.com, a list of the most controversial interviews ever. And I thought these would be like Frost Nixon controversial, but no, they were all television interviews and 90% of them were late night interviews. David Letterman came up again and again. He licked people. He put their hair in their mouth. He forced them to kiss members of the audience. He made Lindsay Lohan cry because he made fun of her drug addiction and that she was out of rehab. And he's like, well, you're going to be back, right? Until she started crying. Britney Spears is another one that gets this all the time. And again and again. And so some of the ones that I found on the list, those were all on the list. Um, There's also a really uncomfortable, I don't know, I'll put the link if anyone wants to watch, because it is, it's almost unbelievable. In 2004, Ben Affleck, was being interviewed by a journalist named Anne-Marie Lasky, who's a French-Canadian journalist. And right at the start of the interview, he pulls her onto his lap 
and basically holds her there and forces her on his lap for the rest of the 15 minute plus on his interview. lap? Yes. And he's all over her. He keeps pulling her head like into his face and chest. And he's very drunk. He's like not making sense. And she's like giggling nervously. She's trying to get away. It's really gross. Um, So there's just so much of that. There's an interview with Barbara Walters interviewing Sean Connery. And he just says slapping women isn't bad. And in fact, I've it's seen necessary. that one. Yeah, that's another one. So that's that with like pop culture interviews. But yeah, it's interesting. The late night talk shows are basically interview format. Um, the But then job interview, right? I'm going to finally return to that because the internet really wanted me to know about job interviews. It was mainly how to do good on a job interview. Blah, blah, blah. There is, we have the first recorded job interview, like in modernity, let's say. And largely, a lot of people credit this person with inventing the concept of a job interview and that they didn't really exist. And then they did exist. And it's Thomas Edison in 1921. People love to give him credit for everything. So I'm a little skeptical. But um, it is kind of the first most easily found record of someone doing job interviews. And in 1921, basically had so many people applying to work for him that as a way, an extra way of sorting people out, he created a test for potential employees. And it was more of a knowledge, a general knowledge thing, not like tell me your weaknesses that we know today. And he had a set of questions and they became so popular, like local newspapers would try to find them out. They would print them so people could practice for like the Edison test. And that is kind of where the very much today in pop culture, like the questionnaire of this, you have this set of things you ask everyone, like inside the actor studio kind of thing. People try to credit that to Edison, which again, That's uh, interesting. I'm not buying it. Do you want to know what the questions were? To yes. see if you would be hired by Would Thomas I be hired Edison? by Edison? Okay. First question. What is the first line in the Aeneid? Mm, see, I'm not getting the job. Nope. Um, and I even have know, read the Aeneid, but I don't yeah. know the first line. <laughs> is the first line off the top of your head? Um, in, in, in the original, it's Arma Baruqua Meccano, but that is arms and the man I sing of Troy. Well, now I can get hired. He doesn't, doesn't know. He doesn't know I practiced. Yeah, we're going to practice. We're going to build a time machine, then get hired by Edison. So not on the strength of us building a time machine, but that we can answer his question. Yeah. Okay. Who was the Roman emperor when Jesus was born? Oh, I don't know. This one's almost a trick question because my mind was like, well, Pontius Pilate, right? But that's when he died, not when he was born. And he wasn't an emperor anyway. It's Tiberius. Oh. These are just such inane things. Yeah. That just... Don't go together. Um, where's the river Volga? not getting hired <laughs> no i'm not getting hired i didn't i did not know any of these except the last one um it's in russia okay um what is brass made of oh um it's an alloy right so is it, it is copper and i don't think it's copper and iron i think that's that that's steel right copper and gold Copper and zinc. Oh. Okay. The final question is, who assassinated President Lincoln? Oh, Booth. Yep. John Wilkes. I know one. 
Yeah. Um, I don't so think I'm getting the job. Yeah, test that is um no, I think you're better off. He kills elephants. Oh. <laughs> I want to work for you. I want to go get hired by Tesla, not at so yeah, that is um a little dive into interviews as a concept. I and love that research. That is not I don't yeah. Went a lot of places. So. Yeah. Yeah. That was a that was a fun tour. Thank you. I had fun putting yeah. it together. Thanks, Cora. So my research thing begins with an yet another reference to my participation in the Witness the Fitness Facebook group, which this is the the Fitbit challenge group and they have different themes every week like this week I'm in a um, Mario themed princess duel and so like right now I should be getting steps so that I can um there's a maze we have to go through it's like a Mario party themed one and so like you have to get 10,000 steps and then like fill out a maze and then you have to get 10,000 steps and color a picture of a Koopa or whatever. Um, and so it's really helped me be more active and I really love the group. So if you're looking for a fun group to join for fitness, witness the fitness on Facebook, they're great. And so they take turns. The it's, uh, Everyone I've seen is a woman, the women who run it. Um, they each take turns creating these challenges and they are so creative. And so a few weeks ago, the challenge was themed around Dennis the Menace. Um, and it was themed around the battle of the two Dennis the Menaces. Yes, because there's a British Dennis the Menace. Yeah, oh, I'm so glad we get to bring this up. I love it. So I'm gonna I'm gonna start by telling you about the two Dennis the Menaces. So this was in 1951, and they actually both debuted on the exact same day. So um, the UK version is dated March 15th, but it actually went on sale on March 12th, which was the exact same day that the US Dennis the Menace debuted. And it's just so weird because they- It's so weird. They're different. They're just different entities. So um, the UK comic was created by David Law and the US one was created by Hank Ketchum. And they are both comic strips featuring young boys named Dennis. Um, they look very different. Although they are both often wearing striped shirts. Uh, the UK Dennis has like black spiky hair and um, a I dog do think named the UK, Nasher. I do think the UK Dennis is much cooler. <laughs> well, the UK Dennis is also like a true menace. Like he is yes. intentionally oh, yeah. causing harm for the sake of chaos. Whereas the U.S. Dennis is, you know, he's blonde, he's always in overalls, and he's more, like, oblivious to the chaos he causes in the world. His menacing is a little less intentional. Um, He's more, like, just on everybody's nerves because he has a lot of energy. Um, So a lot of people have assumed because of this similarity and that they came out around the same time, that there had to have been some kind of plagiarism, that somebody had to have stolen the idea from somebody else. Um, and But the two creators, neither one accuses the other one of plagiarism. They said that they had no way of knowing what the other one was working on and that they didn't know each other. Um, and they agreed to each let each other keep working with, like they didn't, they didn't fight over the name. They were like, we're just, you've got a Dennis the Menace I've got a Dennis the Menace let's go and this was 1951 both of those comics are still in existence in some form or another so the UK version is now known as Dennis and Nasher which is the 
Dennis's dog's name because the U.S. Dennis the Menace has become pretty internationally well known. So just to, I, I'm sure it was a marketing decision to avoid yeah. confusion. But they they both been around for you know more than what seventy years now. Um, yeah. um so like, yeah, it's it's lasted a very long time. But that's not the end of my research thing because that wouldn't be a very thorough research thing. So I, I would wanted be thrilled to- with it though. I love bringing that's that up. There's two it. Dennis the Menaces, the end. Um, the this has the discussion that I saw this in, it was used as an example of a theory for um invention. So we've talked about Ooh. plagiarism and plagiarism today used a Dennis the Menace. Let me pull up the article so I can be accurate. Plagiarism today, which is a I did not know about it. It's just a website that talks about plagiarism. And that's really interesting because plagiarism is about to become a lot more just Ooh, it, yeah. Pandora's uh, box is <laughs> the lid is shaken. Like it is, it is about to become a thing. Um, so plagiarism today, maybe we should all be following that. But they were talking about the difference between plagiarism and independent creation. And Dennis, the two Dennises got a shout out here. Um, and so the example they open up with is a prominent parking drawing prize that was won by Poppy Lechner. Do you know anything about this as your art? No. Okay. So it was um, a work known it's in New Zealand, a work known as forward slash. And it was a drawing on a sheet of A4 paper covered in thousands of forward slashes from a typewriter. And um, shortly after that, a artist, also a New Zealand artist named Alan McDonald, accused her of plagiarism, saying that it was nearly identical to another work of the same name by an American artist named Joel Swanson. And... Um, there is no evidence that there was plagiarism, right? Uh, the committee behind the award stood by Lechner and said that the similarities are coincidental. The artists were each working in a different context and they were trying to do different things with it. And um, she also said that she did not plagiarize, that she only learned of the other work after she was accused of copying it. And so there's this just this discussion of like, what is plagiarism? And that plagiarism is not coincidence, right? That like, if something you mm-hmm. just happened to do something that somebody else had done, that is not that does not meet the standard for plagiarism. And so um, they talked about the ways that they kind of judge plagiarism versus coincidence. And there's a there's a four point test for it. So first is access, which, you know, for like the Dennis the Menace example in 1951, when we didn't have the internet and they both came out on the same day, that was really, you know, like obviously it would have been difficult for one of them to access the other one's work because there wasn't like a place for them to have seen it. But um, today access is a lot more open so it can be harder to prove that you did not have access to the work you're being accused of plagiarizing because most of us have access to a ton of materials that we're never going to see um there's also about what exactly overlaps so is it just the ideas or are there concrete elements like words images do there do your notes overlap so does the process that you mm-hmm. use to create it did that overlap because that can help to show whether it is truly a coincidence or if it is just um straight plagiarism where if you in my opinion they don't say this here but as somebody who has to figure out plagiarism sometimes as a teacher um notes are really important because if you can show me that you took notes and developed these ideas and like had been working on it and thinking about it over time i'm gonna be a lot less likely to think that you plagiarized it than if you just 
something pops up out of nowhere. Like that's, that's a red flag, right? Yeah. There's also just straightforward, like how much of it is similar if it's a piece of writing and just a chunk of it is similar versus almost the whole thing. So it's just, that's just kind of like a straight percentage. And then it's just a, a matter of eliminating other explanations that could have caused the similarity. Like, is there a trope that they share that they're, are they both like using the same inspiration from a source material that could have brought it there? Um, if the copied elements are not unique to the original work, then the alleged plagiarism can't be a plagiarism of it is, is the way that they put it here. So that led me down yet another rabbit hole. And I wanted to think about the, how do we create things? And there are two theories of invention that are conflicting that I did not know about. I mean, I guess I knew about them in the sense that like, if you had told me, hey, there's this theory and this theory, I'd be like, okay, that makes sense that we would have those theories, but I didn't know there were terms for them. So there is the heroic theory of invention and discovery versus the multiple discovery theory. And so the heroic theory says that most inventions and creations are independently made by a unique mind. It's kind of a special genius theory that like mm. this thing came into the world because somebody who is a genius had it in their mind and was dedicated to it and worked hard and made it happen. And the theory of multiple discovery says that most creations are made independently, but more or less simultaneously by multiple people, often because there is some set of circumstances that made that thing likely to be created in that moment, whether that's technological advancements, whether that's a call for it from social need, and that often things are being generated. Um, like the, It makes me think of mushrooms, right? Like there's this underground yeah, network. Yeah, they're all talking so, to each it, other. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I found while trying to research this, an article called from industrial invention, heroic or systematic by Ralph C. Epstein that was written in 1926. And I can't just read this whole article to you because that would take forever, but I kind of want to, it's sort of delightful. Um, so I also went and looked up Ralph C. Epstein, who isn't, uh, and he, was a professor of economics and he graduated from Harvard in 1926 with his, I think his PhD. So this is like his graduate level work while he is still a graduate student. And I just, I, there's something so quaint about the article because, you know, like I've read a lot of academic papers. I've written academic papers. There's this whole format for how you write them. And this is just, it was not the format in 1926. So I'm going to open, I'm just going to read the first couple paragraphs to you and just like, listen to the way this sounds. Like I want to be able to write an academic paper. That's just me. Like, here's some thoughts I have. I want you to think about Don't them. you wish you could? Yes. <laughs> if that was still the way. Right. Let me just tell you, you just go give a lecture and someone writes it down and you're done. Yeah. yeah. Or you write like you're lecturing. Oh, I wish. Oof. Just, I'm sorry, this is off topic, but I had an academic book that just wasn't going to work. I gave up on it. And now I'm writing a novel that's like some of the same themes because right, themes keep coming up. I think the reason I stopped writing academically, I just found like the moment um, I didn't stop, but the reason I want to switch a little or try to is I was able to take about seven pages of, of writing that I had done on the academic book and whole mail cut and paste them into my novel. And it worked. 
And they're like, oh, okay, we were done with following these academic <laughs> rules, weren't we? We had already found a new voice. <laughs> but we could not make it work for ourselves. So just so, yeah. listen to um, Dr. I forgot his name already. Dr. Epstein's thoughts on industrial invention. As a result of the restriction of immigration, considerable attention has of late been directed toward what may be called the mechanization of industry. It is frequently asserted that the relative shortage of unskilled labor is to be met by the increased utilization of machinery, not men, but mechanical equipment, not muscular force, but steam, electric, or other power must perform the various tasks for which the horde of immigrant labor has been relied upon in the past. A recent conference of econo uh, economists and businessmen considered ways and means of meeting this problem. The discussion dealt, however, wholly with the financial aspects of obtaining the new and greater investments of capital equipment. No word was said as to the conditions under which the new mechanical devices themselves might be developed. The assumption was simply that granted economic demand granted the possibility of the capital expenditure, the appropriate contrivances would be at once forthcoming. It is the purpose of this paper to inquire how far this faith is warranted. What actually are the conditions of invention? Do economic and commercial needs unfailingly bring forth new mechanical or other devices to meet them? If so, are these devices forthcoming immediately or must a considerable period elapse before they emerge full-fledged? If the making of invention does require time, then why is this period shorter in some instances than in others? And are there any instances in which insistent calls for a device coupled with deliberate and persistent efforts to achieve its design and manufacture have not successfully met the needs. On the other hand, take certain inventions which have not been made to order. Clearly, there are many in such inventions contrived, not at the behest of a manufacturing company or an engineering firm attempting to solve a particular and immediately present problem, but simply because the general desirability of such devices commends itself to the inventor. There may exist in most instances, to be sure, a need for the invention, some thoroughly pract practical use to which it may be put. But the specific necessity is more or less remote, at any rate, is much more so than in the case of inventions made to order. What then are the conditions of discovery and advance, of stimulation and development? Isn't that fun? That's so fun. Like, hey, I was listening to some people argue and I disagreed with them. So here are my thoughts about that. Like, not one, there was not one reference, not one as stated by et al, blah, 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 in this, and then restated here and reproven. Like, just, just, just let me throw my thoughts at you for several pages. Um, and so that. this article just goes through these different theories of invention. It doesn't really come to any conclusions about them, which is also nice. Just like, hey, here's some things. Uh, just think about this. I did. Yeah. <laughs> Like, so I've got some, some quotes that I pulled out here and some examples that are given. And so it does bring up the two that we're talking about, right? This idea that there's a hero that just creates and it comes forward and they are amazing. But what I think is really interesting is that this guy credits that more with their biographers than reality, that it's more about the story, the myth that comes from them than uh, mm, anything that yeah. they individually did. And that makes a lot of sense to me, right? So they, so yeah. he says something like, um, the biographer makes a hero of his subject and imputes to him qualities of vision and accomplishment, which enable him to do what other men, men of lesser mold, cannot do. And so like, it would make sense if you have, if you are a biographer 
who has honed in on one particular person that your scope is so narrow that you're only looking at what they did. And I mean, if you're selling this, like your market yeah. is dependent upon showing that there's something unique and uh, worth reading about and worth studying about this particular person, it makes sense that it would get kind of cast in that, you know, this unique, this person broke the mold when they, Wait, when they people came out. like reading about special people. They don't like reading about collective efforts that took a lot of time. It's just. Um, so he gives the example of Samuel Crompton who invented the spinning mule, which is like a machine that spun um, cotton. And um, I know what it is, but I thought you were just going to say mules. Machine that spun mules. Machine that spins mules. They just they just hook them up and spin them around for a while. Uh, so it's like a rock tumbler, but but for mules, much worse and bloodier. Oh god, I was just thinking they were having a fun ride, like the tilt a whirl. Oh. You made it dark. Oops, sorry. <laughs> but no, but like you're like I was saying with Edison, why like everything ends up getting attributed to Edison. It's like it we, is the snowball effect. Yeah, we like we like once they have enough magnetic force to attract things they keep we like to keep throwing stuff at them but then he was so that he has this section and he's like but aren't we all kind of inventors aren't we all trying he has this line that says who for example has not thought of how convenient it would be to have a pulley and cord arrangement reaching from bed to window on a <laughs> chilly morning i'm like yeah who among us <laughs> who among us i mean that's how we get the clapper there you go <laughs> um but then he like he's like you know a lot of the things that are invented and i like this part because he's talking about how like we attribute genius to the people who are at the top like to go back to your uh undercover billionaire story we yeah. attribute genius to the people who are at the top but then he says the denison manufacturing company which i don't know what that is or what they made but it employs about three thousand men received from its employee in one year which was 1920 a total of 3,701 suggestions 50 percent of which were of mechanical nature 15 percent of all the suggestions were accepted and you know like who might know how to improve the mechanics except the people who are looking at them every single day and yeah. using them and see the consequences of what goes wrong when they don't work right um so i like that he's like attributing the the actual like people who are on the front lines of using the materials as being someone who is creating ideas and generating. Yeah. It's not even, it's not making this dichotomy of like inventors and makers or idea people and workers. It's like everyone has ideas, and, Yeah, but not everyone can make those ideas work like <laughs> the makers and workers, which is very much like undercover billionaire where they all almost freeze to death or poison themselves. Yeah. They can't um, do it alone. They can't. Yeah. And I mean, like, what would what would inventions even mean alone? Right? Because inventions are about solving social problems. Like right. I so uh then he talks about the the theory of the like multiple inventions, how like things pop up at, at a time mm -hmm. when the when the time is ripe, right? These these theories or these people who assert this emphatically say that no single man, even if he is a genius, is responsible for the sum total of his abilities and for the overt acts and accomplishments. Oh, wait, no, this is not the one that's like the multi theory. This is just saying like this is I mean, I think we talk about this a lot. He says that. Um, to the society and to the generation into which he is born and lives, the inventor owes a debt that stretches back to the life of other generations which have proceeded. So basically just that we 
owe any technological advance that we currently have to the history of everything that's come before. And I mean, this is the argument for uh, universal basic income today, because a lot of it is on AI. And to say that like the people Uh who own that technology right now deserve that money is crazy because that technology was built on the backs of millions of people over thousands of years and a lot of that work was you know like was publicly funded was certainly came at the expense of you know the labor of enslaved people and like if you trace back the lineage through how we got the technological advancements that we have today it certainly is not elon musk who deserves to be a billionaire right like um that is it is wealth that we have all accumulated over the generation. So that's sort of the argument for universal basic income, or at least one of the arguments for it. And Absolutely. he gives the the example of the steam engine, and he goes back to 1451 and then, like, makes several stops along the way. See what I did there with the steam engine? Ha ha. Uh, all <laughs> the way up to 1705. And there's, like, 15 different iterations in between there mm-hmm. to say, like, this is – we would not have gotten to this if, like, this person hadn't invented this and this person hadn't invented that. And I read a book with my um, my kid in the tween book club that was all about like toys and the history of different toys. And so many of them, like the bicycle and even like, I can't, I can't remember all the examples, even like the slinky, like you could just see these like iterations that each person made something. And then the next person was like, okay, I'm going to do this to it. I'm going to do this to it. And it's really hard to say like, okay, who invented that then? Because right. the, it didn't look anything like it ended up looking, but it wouldn't have gotten there without all of those links in the chain in between. Um, and so just that it is a chain. It's not one act that caused that invention. And then there is the theory that I mistakenly started to say the other one was that it pops up because the moment is right. These writers suggest that a particular invention is a matter of general societal culture and scientific preparation and development rather than the abilities of anyone or sometimes even any two or three specific individuals. And so um, a famous example is that the telephone was created by two different people. Like it's often attributed to Alexander Graham Bell, but it was also invented simultaneously but independently. So the telephone was created by Bell in 1876, but also a man named Gray in the same year. Um, The sewing machine was created by someone in 1830, someone in 1846, and someone in 1840. And they all created it independently of the knowledge of each other. Um, Steamboats had multiple creators at the same time. So there's lots of things that this is a suggestion that like the technology was just right the the need for it was right in the society there things just kind of came together at that moment and that maybe and he mentions this like plenty of people had probably tried to invent it and failed like knew that it could happen but they just weren't the ones who were able to bring it together and like there's this problem in science where if you try to replicate results and they fail like you don't get any acknowledgement like that's not exciting people aren't gonna give you rewards but like we need that for things to be scientifically valid and I think this is really similar right like you need the people inventing things that don't work and then telling what they tried and why it didn't work to cut the pool of stuff that other people could try so that we eventually get there right absolutely there's Um, so many things that are like photography right um 
everyone credits Daguerre with inventing photography. And um, do you, do you know about this? Um, so Daguerre with the daguerreotype, right? People are like he invented photography, and there are other people that they're like also was working with that. But there's someone named um, Hippolyte Bayard who also simultaneously like figured out how to do photography. Basically, they did it within months of one another and they knew each other and Bayard came and said like, I've cracked it here. And Daguerre went, no, nah, I don't know if it's ready. I don't think you should like reveal this yet. And then Daguerre behind his back went and like said, said, here's how you do photographs to like the French government and agreed that if they paid him a certain sum, they could have that technology forever. And Bayard then took a photo of himself where he was pretending to be dead. He looked like he was dead. And on the back, he wrote like, I'm dead. I've killed myself. This is all your fault, Daguerre. And like really went into detail about like, you can smell my rotting corpse and it's all your fault. Um, which is just like one of the most... Um, I love that revenge story. Yeah. He, he, he didn't just sit passively by. He tried to fake his own death and pin it on Daguerre. And it's a fascinating photo, but corpse. yeah, it just goes into detail. Like my, he was really trying to sell it since he wasn't actually dead. But yeah, it's, it's it happens all the time. Yeah. They could, they should have just been like the Dennis, the menace guys and been, been like, nice about it. Just both have our own Dennis's. Mm -hmm. yeah so that's there that's my research i just thing. i just found the um if you want to know what the picture said it says the corpse of the gentleman you see here is that of monsieur bayard inventor of the process that you have just seen because he took a photo of his fake dead body as far as i know this ingenious and indefatigable experimenter has been occupied for about three years with perfecting his discovery the government who gave much to monsieur daguerre has said it can do nothing for monsieur bayard and the poor wretch has drowned himself oh the vagaries of human life all the vagaries. Yep. And that's uh, one of the best known self-portraits in the history of photography. I wish it doesn't fit our theme, but I wish our fortune cookie this week could just be, oh, the vagaries. But I don't think it can be. Oh, the vagaries of human life. Mm. Yeah, it, it just doesn't because we have too many happy things in here for that. But, we do. There's a lot of happy yeah. things. Yeah. There's a lot of pre-connections I've been thinking of. Should we recap? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we should recap. Okay, so my weird thing was, and I think this might be hard to fit in, the most hard maybe dog musical chairs no i got no we're gonna do that <laughs> you got it Michelle mine got it. was spotting a missing hungarian painting on the set of stuart little years after it went missing and even years after stuart little premiered and my pop culture was undercover billionaire the show and mine was Ted Lasso and Shrinking, and it's just niceness. Nice is nice. And then my research thing was the somewhat of a history of interviews and just a deep dive, medium dive into interviews. 
And my research thing was the two Dennis the Menaces and how that opened up the discussion of different theories of invention. So there is a lot to be said about wanting to give credit to a singular person and say they're a genius and say they did it all on your own, which is what makes them special. When in fact, there's a lot, a lot of people and a lot of history goes into any, anything that. But I do think that there is also some evidence, even just in our examples, that sometimes you do need the right person in the right place. Like the guy who saw the mm -hmm. Stuart Little painting, he was the right person oh, yeah. to like be watching this with a young daughter and have the knowledge of that painting and the gumption to actually start calling around and do something about it. Um, and I also think that my pop culture thing is a little bit like that because Brett Goldstein is the connection between yeah. those. And like, and he's a really good, like, person to be doing that kind of takedown of toxic masculinity because he's just you know he's really gruff and yeah like it, i i think he's the right person to play that role in those intersections i had no idea he was a writer for that because he's just so good in that role as an actor that i just thought that's what it all was um although we're learning about just how many actors are also writers right now with the writer right. strike and how important that relationship is so so I maybe we could start working at a fortune cookie that's like um you have to be in the right place at the right time someone has to be in the right place someone at the right time it might not right need to be you right time. <laughs> but uh, actually many yeah no I think this is this is difficult for me because it's 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 like both are true. Like yeah. Sometimes one person can just be like, boom. Of course, though, it wasn't just one. He saw it, but he had to get a hold of the set yeah. designer who was the one that bought the painting, who put it in front of his eyes to see. So even that, right, it's just all these moving parts to get to like so, one moment of so then singular... it's like, you know, the phrase behind every great man, there's a blah, blah, blah. There's it. So it's something Ooh, like that. But like behind every great man. OK, so we have your pop culture. We have my pop culture. We have research thing. I think research thing just fits, right? Because who do we interview? Why are people right, important? Right. Why who is this person the that? one that you pull up? Again, it's like picking someone out. You're worth it, talking to. You're worth interviewing. And you. when you asked about dog musical chairs, my or when you talked about dog musical chairs, my first question was, who thought of that, right? But like, yeah. it might not have been one particular person. It could have just been like this spitballing that evolved out of this, or like I don't know. Maybe there's a maybe there's a rich cultural history of dog musical chairs somewhere that I just know nothing about. This um, could turn into my snowman thing from ages ago, <laughs> where now I just research dog musical chairs for three weeks. <laughs> Um, another piece of the puzzle every time, every time I'll get closer to making a human living snowman. Um, but, but I think that my, my tendency to ask, like, well, who created that? It just, yeah. it was like how deeply that's embedded. Like, well, who gets this credit? Who, who is the person that is behind this? And I mean, if it went all wrong, who gets the blame, right? Who's, who's responsible oh, for yeah. this mess? <laughs> And uh, and more often than not, it's not the person who would have gotten the credit. Yeah, I feel like yeah, I feel like that's a. And just bring Elon Musk into it. He's trying so hard in this moment to say again with this idea of the secret undercover billionaire that I came from nothing, and even if I didn't come from nothing, I could do this all again from nothing. That that is just so important for some people to believe in. 
And I think it's fascinating to watch Elon Musk right now just totally try to deny that he comes from a very wealthy family that did mining. But even South that Africa. very wealthy family is like, uh, excuse me, I know we have lots of emeralds. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. No, like his You've dad is like, it just, his dad reminds me, like I'm rooting for his dad and his dad is a terrible it's person, terrible. right? Yeah. Because yeah. he's like, oh, there was never anything signed, but I did a handshake deal with an Italian man on a tarmac and now I went and looted all these mines. Um. But at least he's at least he's honest about honest about being it. a it's cartoon kind of, villain. Yeah, which I think is so much better than not being honest about and being a cartoon. Being villain. someone who paints the W in Twitter so that you can feel superior to people somehow. I don't want to talk about Elon Musk anymore. I brought him up. I know. Okay, so behind every great man, there is. The entire human fucking race the and the history of it. Race, yes. <laughs> Could that be it? That works. I like that. Behind every great man, <laughs> every the great person, human the fucking entire race. Entire history of humanity and the human fucking race. <laughs> yep, that's it. Behind every great man, there's the whole fucking human race. <laughs> I love Absolutely. it. Yes, yep. that's it. That's, that's it. That's one of my favorite ones ever, I think. Good job. Yeah. High fives. Woo. High fives. Boom, boom. Cool, cool. Okay. That's it. Done. That's it. We're done. We did good. I feel like it was faster than usual, but who knows? They always. Minute it'll, 40, it, hour, 47. hour 47. We're going to get there. Yep. Okay. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye. Goodbye.